Nearly 7.33. So after President Trump said the US would refrain from further military action against Iran, it's been an interesting period to track the response of oil markets, which you would think might have been very much affected by the recent uncertainty. Did it actually play out that way? John Kilduff is an analyst and founding partner of Again Capital and joins us on the line. Good morning to you from Seoul. Good morning to you, sir. So can you just walk us through the movement of global crude oil prices, I suppose we could start with, since the US killing of Iran's top commander, Qasem Soleimani? Well, certainly um, the, the worries in the market uh, you know, reached a boiling point um, over that. And the international benchmark Brent crude uh, approached 70, $72 a barrel uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Iranian retaliation. But once again, once the oil market recognized and realized that, uh, A, it was a, um, ver- a thankfully weak retaliation or response by Iran, and then that there was no oil flows affected, we immediately took out that risk premium out of the market. Prices fell markedly uh, last week, uh, with Brent getting back down into the 60s, and uh, the, the West Texas Intermediate, the U.S. crude oil price falling below $60 a barrel. So now, once again, with these tensions easing somewhat for now, at least, um, we are more concerned about the demand prospects for oil going forward here and, and the relative oversupply that uh, persists in the market globally. So was it mainly what you've just pointed out, that that they started to believe that tensions would be overcome by uh, a more rational response to what was going on, uh, that saner heads would prevail. Is that really what was behind the the lack of greater disruptions this time around? Well, no doubt. I mean, again, there was, there was actually no disruptions. I think there was a, there was a point in the market where the price was rallying uh, extraordinarily, uh, racing higher. Um, and on the fear that, that the worst-case scenario was going to play out, that Iraq's oil production, particularly in its southern fields in Basra, would be targeted. Uh, also, too, that if things spiraled out of control, that once again Saudi Arabian installations would be hit. And also there was a lot of a sense that uh, another easy target for the Iranians would have been Kuwait's offshore uh, oil infrastructure. So... The market at one point in time, when it was looking as the old expression here and it goes, uh, it was looking, it was, it was definitely darkest before the dawn for a moment. But again, just like what happened in last September when the uh, Saudi facilities at Abcake got targeted and uh, we were quickly able to assess that no real oil flows would be impacted, the market fell off. So for all the fears that get built up and talked about, uh, you know, potential disruptions to oil supply, the fact of the matter is, is that the players in the Middle East on both sides tend to avoid directly striking oil-producing assets because that, of course, is the golden egg for everybody, and they don't want to uh, kill the golden goose. Yeah, it's certainly a sign of, of, of rationality in this whole situation, despite the fierce rhetoric that still goes on. We were hearing from Hezbollah's leader just a few minutes ago uh, on the show. But let's look at an, another economic factor, oversupply perhaps you might call it, or an abundant supply would be a more positive spin. U.S. shale oil, how that's driving the situation? There's no doubt about it. I would just want to say that your point about rationality is is well taken. I I don't think there's enough uh, credit at times in the market uh, to that 
position by the by the players that are on the stage here in, in the throes of all this. So that that is an excellent point. Um, but I've been saying for some time that the U.S. Um, uh, production, uh, the increase in its production to now nearly 13 million barrels a day of crude oil, uh, has just been an, a remarkable feat that has changed the dynamic. I sort of liken it to a, a firewall uh, against some of the geopolitical risk factors that would have otherwise really uh, sent prices spiraling higher uh, in, in olden days, if you want to call them that, or at least 20 or 30 years ago, when the market was more persistently tightly supplied, as opposed to what we're going through now, where it's, I refer to it as relative oversupply. There, there's not a lot of extra oil on the market being produced every day, but there's still some. And that's why OPEC and Russia have gotten together over the past course of the past two years now to continually rein in or limit their supply to the market and their growth uh, in order to uh, really accommodate uh, the U.S. position. Because it's another remarkable fact that the U.S. oil exports have soared as well. So we're not only just producing oil here, we're putting it on the global market. We hit 4.6 million barrels a day of exports in the week two weeks ago, according to government reports. And does that all point to U.S. energy independence, as has been boasted by President Trump? No, uh, that that uh, idea and sentiment is um, uh, incorrect. I'll be polite about it. Uh, the, the oil market remains a global one. Uh, the U.S. still imports about 40% of its daily requirement for two reasons. A, uh, Canada has historically been a, a big supplier, and it still is. The U.S. still gets oil on a daily basis from Saudi Arabia and, and increasingly from Iraq, uh, but also, too, the bulk of the U.S. refiners on the on our U.S. Gulf Coast in Texas and um, Louisiana need a, a heavier grade of crude oil, one that's more thicker and, and, and more sulfur laden to produce and, and make the various components. They can't; those plants cannot produce or handle the light, sweet shale oil that comes out of uh, the Texas formations. That oil has to go overseas or get blended. So, no, we are nowhere near energy independent. We are an energy dominant player now, for sure, and it's been made a difference, but uh, it's an interconnected oil world. Yeah, because on the surface, it looks like an odd situation to be a major exporter, but also a major importer. But as you've pointed out there, it's a nuanced market. And we could go quite deep, couldn't we, into petrochemicals, for example, and the various different um, criteria required for for the spin-off industries, which produce everything from t-shirts to, um, well, the fuel that put, we put in our cars. Um, c- can you just t- exactly. tell us how the petrochemicals I, I market has been affected? I want to all your listeners, though, so we won't go that deep. <laughs> right, right. But, but can you tell <laughs> us how the petrochemicals market has been affected? Is, does everything that happens to the crude oil price also immediately affect the petrochemicals industry? Oh, no doubt. The petrochemical industry is very uh, cost input sensitive. Uh, it's when crude oil gets on, on, a, on, a, on a run high or a, a jog higher to those $75, $80, 100 a barrel, uh, the petrochemical industry suffers quite a bit. You know, all consumers of all sorts, whether you're manufacturer or producer uh, uh, using plastics, I mean, uh, uh, you know, are, are spoiled and, and want it as cheaply as possible. So the margins get very much squeezed 
uh, for petrochemical uh, companies uh, when the price of crude oil spikes higher. So, so yes, uh, that's a, um, a, a big difference maker. And this has been boom times uh, for petrochemical uh, companies because of now what's happened with the low price of oil. And they do benefit uh, from the shale oil and the light sweet crude that uh, is produced because uh, that is uh, typically an input for them. Look at the Iran situation. It was already operating under heavy sanctions, uh, as we know very well in this part of the world. South Korea being forced to cut imports from Iran to, to zero. Uh, and what, what is Iran's oil export situation like anyway at the moment? They have gone down to a trickle. Uh, they are, they're down to producing about maybe a million barrels a day. They're putting a lot of it in storage. They are, uh, through subterfuge, continuing to sell primarily to China. In two ways, they, they undertake these uh, costly ship-to-ship transfers on the open seas. Uh, under, under the dark of night, literally, they turn their transponders off. It's a very fascinating sort of story. But also, too, China has pulled a different trick where they are filling up a, uh, a, a pre-border, if you will, uh, reserve stock of Iranian crude oil so that delivery has been taken Payment hasn't been made, but it hasn't technically crossed customs yet. So um, there's a bit of an overhang in the market here. And, and investors who are looking at oil companies or, or playing the crude oil futures uh, straight up need to be careful because to the extent there's any kind of breakthrough or relief for Iran uh, in terms of their sanctions or say somehow China is allowed again to buy again, there's an overhang of crude oil out your way uh, that could easily come immediately onto the market and, and depress prices in rapid fashion for a time. The um, the, the transport route, though, because it, it, it's interesting, again, from a South Korean perspective recently, uh, when there were great concerns about whether the Strait of Hormuz might be cut off, um, rational heads prevailed. But still, uh, th- that meant that even if we don't rely on any actual Iranian oil, 70% of oil products for South Korea come through the Strait of Hormuz. Can you just stress for us the strategic significance of that and, and what can be done to, to try to uh, either mitigate the, the reliance that we have on that or, or try to make sure that strait remains clear? Well, it's interesting to your earlier question in terms of the U.S. being energy independent. We're not but we are somewhat um, straight of Hormuz independent, I'll tell you that. Uh, and yes, you're right, the Asian buyers are uh, terrifically at risk. couple of things, though. There has been a big uh, buildup of uh, U.S. and now other country military naval assets in the region. Um, U.S. Navy has acknowledged Iran's ability to close the strait, but they've also stated their, emphatically their, their ability to reopen the strait uh, quickly. Uh, but also, too, you have to remember one thing, and this is what sort of gets into all this rationality talk uh, and considerations. Uh, the Iranians have friends in China in particular, I think South Korea and Japan to a lesser extent. Um, they don't want to uh, uh, really, you know, anger China and, and the other Asian buyers by harming them economically so greatly by shutting the strait. It's actually not in Iran's interest to do so. If they were able to hurt the United States more by doing that, I think it would be a higher probability. But since it is Asia, they're traditional buyers um, for you know many decades now. Um, they are just, I, in my, it's my sense that it's not, it's, it's not something they'll undertake. And speaking of U.S. and China, about to sign the so-called Phase One trade deal this week. How's this thaw? If it is a thaw, 
and that we can rely on going to affect crude oil prices and markets in general this year? Well, of course, with the devil's still in the details. We're hearing a lot of positive things, though. Even, even today, there's been more reports about that it's a more fulsome agreement maybe than just an agricultural one, which would be terrific. Because the Asian region that you're in, South Korea, Japan, China, as you know, the manufacturing sector got hit hard uh, by all this. Trade got hit hard by all this, uh, 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 by this saga. So to the extent that trade volumes uh, can pick up across the board and that should encourage manufacturing activity, uh, it, uh, it should buoy the price of oil because there should be renewed and, and rebounded demand. Uh, but also, too, the economic picture in Asia uh, should pick up as well because it got hurt the most uh, by, by this situation and by, these, uh, by this trade we're dragging on the way it has. So um, in a way, the, you, know, you have to have a lot of optimism about 2020 if this is the first step towards uh, more, more normalcy uh, in, in, regard, in regards to trade uh, with the U.S. and China in particular. John Kilduff, analyst and founding partner of Again Capital. Thank you very much for sharing your analysis with us this morning. Thank you. Great to be on with you.